You would take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 in your Bibles. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, and just I just want to briefly share with you my testimony about how I came to Christ and how the Lord brought me here in a nutshell. Uh, I was unable to do that this morning, and so I will not try to take considerable length of time this evening because I know you want to eat food afterward. And I know you're Presbyterians, but uh, Baptists would be ready to eat right now. But uh, you're Presbyterian, so you are much more patient. And so, uh, just just brief testimony about me. I was born in Huntsville, Texas, but not in the prison. And I was born there. My dad's family was from Maine. My mother's family was from Mississippi and Louisiana. And uh, my on my mother's side of the family, nobody was generally converted to Christ. So if I would have been raised... In Texas, my life would probably have been very different uh, than it is today. Uh, But at the age of one, my parents moved back to Maine. My dad wanted to move all the way back to way northern Maine. My mom said, absolutely not. I'm not living out in the middle of nowheres. And so she agreed to move as far north as Bangor. She was an RN at the hospital there for a number of years and recently retired. But my mother and my father each made a profession of faith uh, in my dad in an independent Baptist church, my mother in a Southern Baptist church, but never really lived for the Lord in front of me and never really spoke to me about the gospel. But my grandmother on my father's side would always come down and visit us and we'd always have, they would always have doctor's appointments in Bangor because it was the closest big hospital And they would always speak to us about the Lord and always speak to me about the Lord and share the gospel with me. And so at the age of 12, I went up to visit my grandparents. Me and my dad were going up on a fly fishing trip up to to Allagash, Maine, where my grandparents lived, a little town of about 250 people uh, out in the middle of nowheres, and went there. Instead of going fly fishing that Sunday, my grandmother invited me to church. So I went to the church, little Baptist church up there, and heard the Word of God preached. And that evening, or that afternoon, when we got back in front of my grandparents' garage, two of my cousins, uh, who are no longer walking with the Lord, uh, but they asked me, they said, John, if you were to die today, do you know where you'd spend eternity? I said, well, I think I'm a pretty good person. I, haven't, I, I try to keep God's Word and try to be a good person. They told me, they said, well, good people don't go to heaven. Saved people do. And I remember they, it was amazing to me because they were only 11 or 12. They opened up the book of Romans. And they knew the Romans road and Baptist churches, you learned the Romans road. And so they brought me down the Romans road. And I realized I was a sinner that needed a savior. And there in front of my grandparents' grads, I knelt down on my knees as a 12-year-old boy and gave my life to Jesus Christ. And I told my grandmother about it, and she told me, she said, well, you need to get involved in a local church. There was a van ministry in the Bangor area at the Faith Baptist Church in Orno that came and picked me up for church and a van ministry. 
And one of the young men here picked one of my favorite songs that we used to sing all the time in our church, Praise You Jehovah, out of the Majesty hymn book that we used all the time. as one of my favorite songs to sing. And I still love to sing that song. And, uh, and it was through the influence of that church, I remember my pastor preaching a, a sermon one day on hell. And uh, quite often we don't hear sermons on hell like we used to anymore. Uh, but he preached a sermon on hell. And I remember being so worried about my friends, because all my friends are Roman Catholics. And I don't know if you're familiar with chick tracks, but I had, all our church had was chick tracks. And so all they had was anti-Catholic chick tracks. But why the Pope was the Antichrist and why Catholicism was from the pits of hell and X, Y, and Z. And they are not the best tracks to give your Catholic friends. And, uh, but I gave them to them anyway because I was burdened about them. And, and I asked them, I said, are you saved? They said, no. Then I said, you're going to hell if you're not saved. I wasn't very tactful, but what I spoke was the truth. They began to call me John the Baptist because I was, my name was John and I attended a Baptist church. But shortly afterwards, I began to sense at the, around 8th grade into freshman year of high school that God was calling me to preach. I had a desire to preach. I remember when I was ordained as a Baptist minister, they asked me at the ordination council, they said, Mr. Kelly, can you explain to us your call to preach? I said, all I know is this, is that when that man stands behind the pulpit, I want to knock him out of the pulpit because I want to preach. I had this desire within me, woe be unto me, that I preach not the gospel. And I had that desire within me, and I began to meet with my pastor once a month, and eventually went off to Bible college in Mississippi, and there's a long story to tell you about how I journeyed from, uh, from being an independent, fundamental, premillennial, dispensational, separated, step-on-your-face Baptist uh, to where I am today. Uh, but God in His grace, through stages, brought me to Reformed theology, a Reformed understanding of salvation, and through preaching at a church in northern Maine, through the book of the Revelation, thinking I understood everything because I had my Schofield Reference Bible, I realized I did not, and began to launch me on a study in eschatology, which led me out of dispensationalism. Began preaching through the book of Acts. When I got to Acts 15, I thought that I could prove congregational church government uh, from those passages and found out to be wrong. And eventually, this is me standing before you today. Uh, but if you have any other questions, I'd be glad to answer those. And we are sincerely looking forward to what the Lord will do in these upcoming months. So do pray for us, and do pray, above all things, that the Lord would get glory unto Himself. In the salvation of sinners in the planting of churches, and as I prayed, not unto us, but unto the Lord, be all glory and praise. Psalm 2 in your Bibles this evening. Psalm 2. Let us hear the word of the Lord. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath, and vex them in his sore displeasure. Yet I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion, 
I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, and be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his own holy and errant and infallible word. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, God, I thank thee for thy goodness, for thy mercy. God, I thank thee for the love of this church, even in the offering in which they have given to us today. God, certainly we are not worthy of it. God, we do not deserve it, but I thank thee for their great love and hospitality and generosity. God, I pray thy richest blessing upon this church. God, I ask of thee that you would give me now that promised Holy Spirit to be able to declare the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. God, we live in a hell-bent, wicked world. But Lord, I thank you for the glorious hope that we have in Christ. Lord, I thank thee, Lord, for the blessing of the gospel and the hope that we have that you have set your king upon your holy hill of Mount Zion. The Lord reigns in the heavens today. God, help us, encourage us, challenge us by thy word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we live in a world where a virus governs many parts of our lands. We live in a country where everything is looking up, gas is up, groceries are up, housing is up, and more and more we could list things are going up. We live in a world where up is down and down is up. We live in a world where right is wrong and wrong is right. We live in a world where people declare their sin as Sodom. There is no shame. The old preacher Adrian Rogers said it this way, Sin that used to slink down the back alley now struts down Main Street. And people love to have it so. We live in a world where there is utter political chaos, wicked agendas, corruption, appear to be getting the upper hand where godly agendas are suppressed. Truth has fallen into the streets, but there is no repentance. And we say with Elisha, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Where is the Lord God amidst this crazy, depraved world in which we live? Our school systems promote evolution and teach immorality and teach things to our young children that are not appropriate. Our government, many years ago, has removed and banished prayer from school and allowed the slaughter of the unborn to continue. 
Our government has redefined marriage and cannot even define as judges stand before Congress do not even know what a woman or a man is. We have become a society that does that which is right in its own eyes. We become a society that are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. What I painted to you is an apparent hopeless and frightening picture. But unfortunately, this is what most Christians have in their mind. They look at the world as it is. These are the things that they look upon. These are the things that they see. Because of this, many Christians, and maybe you even here this day, are worried, fearful, and hopeless. But what lies around the corner for North Carolina, lies around the corner for our country, what lies around the corner for our world. But I submit unto you that if we understand this psalm aright, it will shatter, it will obliterate such worry, fear and hopelessness. Rather than being on the defensive, we will be put on the offensive. We will gain a perspective of hope and victory rather than uncertainty and failure. My friends, I submit to you there is hope. There is triumph. The gospel is still the power of God unto salvation in these uncertain times in which we live. So I want to bring the message to you this evening about being hopeful in uncertain times. Being hopeful in uncertain times. And I must admit to you, we live in strange and uncertain times. I do not and dare not make light of it. The psalmist makes this very clear in the first three verses of this psalm. I want you to see with me in these first three verses the world's hostility. In verses 1 through 3, why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. This hostility that is in our world has an object. And we find out what that object is in verse 2. It is against the Lord, that is Jehovah, and against his anointed, that is Christ. So this is the object of the world's hostility. It is ultimately against the Lord in his Christ. Today the world is as hostile as ever towards the Lord and his anointed. Therefore, because the world is against the Lord and is anointed, it is against those who belong to the Lord. In what ways do we see this hostility of the world against the Lord and His anointed? Well, first, under the world's hostility, I want you to see with me in verse 1, the heathen raging. You'll see it there in verse 1, why do the heathen rage? It's interesting, this word here, rage, it is the only time that this Hebrew word appears in the entirety of the Old Testament. And this word carries with it the idea of being in a tumult, 
or being in a commotion. Others have translated it that the heathen are in an uproar. The nations are seen as being in a violent commotion against the Lord and against His anointed. These nations and their fit of rage and excitement, they're seeking to find some way to secure something. They're trying to secure rebellion and their own autonomy from God. They're seeking to prevent something, the knowledge of God and their own land. It is as if they're coming against the Lord as a mob. We have seen this in recent days. We have seen nations coming against the Lord in His Christ in various forms of tyrannical government. We have seen it in totalitarianism, which is a form of government that theoretically permits no individual freedom and seeks to subordinate all aspects of individual life to the authority of the state. Mussolini said it this way, all within the state, none outside the state, and none against the state. And by World War II, totalitarianism became synonymous with absolute oppressive single-party government. And many of these governments in their rage against the Lord, for that is exactly what they were, these were atheistic governments that had arose and shook their fist at God. And they were essentially saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. Countries like Russia with Stalin, even modern-day China, and North Korea, These nations have removed God entirely from the moral fiber of their nation. I think about our vacation Bible school we just had in Greenville. We were raising money in our vacation Bible school to send to the Schultzes, the missionaries we support in the Czech Republic, and they were giving a slide presentation about them. And over 80% of people in the Czech Republic because they were once dominated by communistic Russia. Over 80% identify as atheistic or non-religious. Can you imagine? I was speaking to you about New England this morning. And those numbers are staggering, but this is even more staggering. This government that they had that pumped this ideology into the minds of the people. This was a government that shook its fist at God. Not only had they removed God, but they persecute and execute those that worship the Lord in His anointed. This is a way that they rage against the Lord. Well, you say, preacher, well, we don't have a totalitarian government, but there is something that comes much closer home to where we are. It's not really a form of government as it is an ideology. It is that of secularism. This is the separation of religion from the civil affairs and the state. And may be broadened to a similar position concerning the need to remove and minimalize the role of religion from the public sphere. And this is what we're seeing taking place in our own nation. Our country has sought to separate religion from the public sphere. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in secular humanism. 
This is where our country is, where Canada is, where much of Europe is. The most secular country in Europe is Sweden. We may not be totalitarian, but we have done everything possible as a nation to remove any mention of God in the public sphere, in the public area. This is a shaking of the fist in the very face of God. The nation, our country, those in positions of leadership and even those within the states are in a state of rebellion against God and shaking their fist at God. Not only do we find the heathen raging, but we find the people imagining in verse 1, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? This word imagine means to be devising. It means to be plotting. It means to be conspiring. It's very interesting because it is the very same Hebrew word that is used in Psalm 1 in verse 2 that is translated meditate. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And so these ungodly people are not meditating. They're not dwelling and thinking upon the law of the Lord. But they are conspiring. They're directing their vain imagining. and They're setting their mind and plotting against the Lord and His anointed. There's one thing that you and I must understand. That the attacks against our Lord in His Christ are not haphazard. But they are premeditated conspirings. In their rage against the God of heaven, they plot and devise a way so they think to overthrow the sovereign. The attacks that come against our Lord are not accidents, but are demonstrations of human depravity. The agenda to remove any semblance of God from our society has its origins in the pit. It is satanic. The attack on the home today the attack on traditional marriage, the attack on human sexuality, the attack on morality, the attack on public worship, the attack not only in the civil sphere, but even within the church with the rise of liberalism and neo-orthodoxy and in liberation theology, there has been the attack on the person and the work of Christ, the attack on the inspiration of Scripture. These attacks against God's created order and revelation are yet another way for man to shake his fist at God. Not only the heathen raging and, and the people imagining, but we find thirdly the kings resisting. In verse 2 and 3, the kings of the earth set themselves. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Here the scripture says in verse 2 that they set themselves. This word means to take one's stand. It means to resist. The kings of the earth, they set themselves. They're taking their stand. They're resisting. And they're taking counsel. And this word means to fix. And it carries with it the idea of being unmoved. It is as if they are digging in their heels against the Lord. We see a comparison even again with Psalm 1 of the righteous who is like a tree that is firmly 
planted by the rivers of living water. But these ungodly men and kings and rulers are planted by polluted streams. And they continue further in their rebellion and ungodliness. And in their stand against the Lord, they say, let us break his bands asunder and cast away his cords from us. What is this that they're saying? What they're saying is, yet again, we will not have this man to rule over us. This is rebellion. It is rejection of the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. They're seeking to cast off all restraint. The wicked say that they will cast off the yoke of God in his Christ. Mankind today is part of the raging of the nations, not just those in positions of leadership within our nation, but even the entirety of the nation itself. This mob as it is, is part of the raging of the nations. They are part of those who plot against the Lord. Many of those even within our own state here and other parts of our country have dug in their heels against the Lord and they agree with the poet who said this, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The nations, the people, the kings... They look so high and mighty now. Things look so bad now. And it appears to many that they are winning. The cause of God is failing and floundering in the dust. The schemes of man are advancing. It seems like the cause of God is failing. Just like I shared with you about New England, there's church after church that are for sale Buildings are being bought up. It's happening all over Europe. Many people have the idea we're just going to hold on till Jesus comes. And they say, where is God in the midst of all this? Has the will and the plan of God been thwarted by man? Not in the slightest. I want you to consider with me now this. Not just the heathen raging, not just these wicked peoples, not just this world's hostility, but I want you to notice secondly with me heaven's sovereignty in verse 4 through 9. You must understand that the world's hostility cannot overthrow heaven's sovereignty in spite of man's attacks against God. I want you to understand this. In spite of our political leaders, other world leaders, even men that are just living in society, despite their attacks against God, you must understand that the heavens do rule. As Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. No one can stay his hand and say to him, What doest thou? This evening, the Lord, as it were, looks over the balcony of heaven and He is beholding all the raging, all the imagining, and all the resisting of man. And as He sees it, it is no threat to Him whatsoever. There is no panic in heaven tonight. Absolutely not. God is not in heaven biting His fingernails 
wondering what the, might, what the next thing might be. As our confession teaches us, He is the great decreer of all things. There is nothing that comes to pass that He has not decreed and has not allowed. He is absolutely in control of all things. I often think about Charles Spurgeon in one of his sermons that spoke about when you wake up in the morning. And he says, you see... As the sun shines through the window, all the little dust motes floating in the air. It says, one does not move to the right nor to the left, apart from your heavenly Father. Everything under the sovereign control and hand of God. My friend, there's nothing that's happening right now in our world, in our society, in our country that is outside the control of God. No panic in heaven. You say, well, how do you know that? Verse 4, under heaven's sovereignty, number 1, notice with me, the Lord laughing. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. As man plots and attempts to overthrow God's sovereign might, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. Why does he laugh? Because the kings are no match for the king of heaven. These kings and rulers of our world have forgotten that it is he, the Lord, that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. The inhabitants are reputed as nothing, as grasshoppers. They have forgotten that the Lord by one angel had slain 185,000 rebels. It is arrogancy and pride on the part of man to think that he can take on omnipotent God. And because of this, it goes on to say in verse 4, the Lord shall have them in derision. Well, what does that mean? He will have them in derision. Albert Barnes said that the Lord looks upon and regards the efforts of these kings as merely vain. In other words, man trying to thwart the will of God is like a man trying to use a pebble to dam Niagara Falls. It is utterly impossible to thwart and to stop the will of God. Not just the Lord laughing, but I want you to see with me the Lord terrifying. In verse 5, Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Those who come against the Lord in his Christ will not only be met by God's laugh, but they will be met by his wrath. Men will quake before God with fear. It is a fearful thing, the writer of Hebrews said, to fall into the hands of the living God. They will one day stand before the one whose eyes are as a flame of fire. This word where he says he will vex them in his sore displeasure. This word displeasure literally speaks of something hot, something burning. It literally speaks about fervent heat. So those against the Lord, He will come to them in a perfect, terrifying, and blazing indignation. The kings of the earth, again, are no match for the King of heaven. I wonder what it will be like on that last and final day. When the wicked stand before God at the great judgment bar, and these rulers that had murdered and executed those 
that loved the Lord Jesus Christ and paid and, and sealed their debt and sealed their fate with their own blood. I wonder what it will be like when those wicked rulers stand before God on that final day. I wonder what it will be like when ungodly government leaders, for they are God's ministers, the Bible says in Romans 13, that have been appointed by God. When they give an account before God on judgment day, and they have bypassed wicked legislation and have allowed the slaughter of the unborn when blood is upon their hands on the judgment day, what it will be like for them. The wicked men will be found wanting in the day of God's judgment. I want you to see also thirdly with me here in verse 6 and 7, not only the Lord terrifying, the Lord laughing, but notice with me thirdly, the Lord ruling in verse 6 and 7. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. While the kings are out devising a way to overthrow heaven's sovereignty, the Lord is pointing you tonight to the established king of heaven. God says, in light of all this, oh yes, the heathen, they're raging. The people are out conspiring and the kings have dug in their heels against the Lord and against his Christ. The Lord sits there and he laughs and he wants to point you tonight to the one that is seated upon his holy hill of Mount Zion, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants, you to point you, he wants to point you to the one that is there seated, ruling and reigning tonight. This is the one upon the throne in the heavens. The Lord Jesus Christ, according to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, has ascended up unto the Ancient of Days. And there you connect that to Acts 1. He's ascended up on a cloud of glory. And to the Lord Jesus has been given dominion and a kingdom and power and glory. And he has all dominion and a power now. And we know that because he has sent forth his promised Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 29-36, the Lord Jesus, he sits as king. We need not worry about the rulers and kings of this world. For the Lord is seated in heaven above all of them today. The kingdom of Christ is here. His spiritual kingdom is here now. Verse 7 reveals to us that the one seated on the throne is David's greater son. This latter part of the verse 7 where it says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, is attributed many times to Christ in the New Testament. Then we have, fourth of all in verse 8, the Lord giving. Under heaven's sovereignty, the Lord giving. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Just a surface reading of that is a very encouraging verse for me. And I'm going to get to what is actually being said here in just a moment. But what a promise to claim. Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. What a missionary promise. That you can ask God to give you the heathen and God says, I will give them to you. What a promise. And since the Lord is reigning now and has all power and dominion now, we should expect that he should cause the nations to be one. But why believe this? 
Well, verse 7, in the context here, the Son of verse 7 is to ask God the Father for the nations. Ask of me. The Father is speaking, and He is telling the Son, You ask of me, and I will give to you the nations. So the actual context here is the Father is telling the Son, You ask for the nations. And as you ask for them, I will give you the nations. The nations were to be given to the Son on the condition that He would simply ask for them. I want to ask you a question. Do you think that as Jesus hung between heaven and earth on Golgotha's hill upon the jacket wood for you and me, do you think that as He hung there that He forgot to ask the Father for the nations? I submit to you He did not. Ultimately, in time, the nations will be the possession of the Son. Now, I will leave it to your pastor to explain to you about how all that will happen. I'm not here to explain to you all the eschatological ends. I'll leave that to him. And let him talk to you about all that. That's not what I'm here to do. But what I'm here to simply say to you is this. Is that Jesus promised that he would gain the nations. And this should cause a great stir and a great vigor and zeal for evangelism, for it did in the heart of William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, the father of modern missions. And he stood before that Baptist association there in England, and he said to them, God has called me to go to India, preach the gospel. They said to him, they said, Mr. Carey, God will save the heathen with or without you, and he doesn't need your help. William Carey then went on to write a wonderful track about God using means to accomplish his sovereign purpose in going to preach the gospel. But William Carey had this hope that Jesus had indeed asked for the nations. He had a promise from God that the nations would be reached, and he believed that he could ask And God would answer prayer. We have not been sent on an empty errand. I want you to understand, saints, as you have opportunity to speak the gospel, it's not your responsibility to save anyone. I know you understand that you're good Calvinist. You understand that you don't save anyone. Our responsibility is simply to tell. And whenever you tell the story of Jesus and His love, It doesn't matter, you never fail. When you share the gospel, you never fail because it is not your responsibility to save anyone. As long as you share the gospel and you do that, you are obeying 100% what the Lord Jesus wanted you to do. You are never a failure when you share the gospel. And even when someone rejects it, don't think that you're a failure because it's not within your power to convert a sinner. It's God's power. So you never fail when you share the gospel of Christ. Missions and the planting of churches are not meaningless, but they serve to this grand purpose of reaching the nations with the gospel. In verse 9, we read about the Lord breaking. We read in verse 9 this, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now there is much debate about what this particular verse means. 
is the them that is being referred to, thou shalt break them. Is this a reference to the wicked kings that the Lord is going to dash in judgment? Who is this a reference to? Well, John Calvin in his commentary said that the immediate referent here to them in verse 9 is the heathen found in verse 8. The Lord asks for the nations, but how will these nations be one? They will be one by the rod. But this rod that is being spoken of here is not the physical rod. It is a spiritual rod. For if you go to Isaiah 11, in verse 4, that great kingdom passage, Isaiah speaks about defeating gospel enemies by the rod of his mouth. And you can connect this over to 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 8, where the Bible speaks about the Antichrist. Again, I will refer to your pastor about what the Antichrist is. But the Lord will consume that Antichrist with the spirit, literally the breath of his mouth. Revelation 19, 11 through 21, B.B. Warfield commenting on this passage spoke about this being a picture of Christ in victory with the gospel, spoken about the sword being the word of God, the rod of iron being the gospel, that it is through the preaching of the gospel that will subdue the enemies and overcome them. But there is some degree of truth to that. For why is that? For because it is by the word of God and by the gospel that you tonight have been subdued to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there may be very well other things included in this, no doubt, or a picture of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, but there is indeed this picture of victory. The gospel is the power of God. I want you to understand something this evening, that there is a weapon that is more powerful. There is a weapon that is more powerful than a nuclear bomb. There's a weapon more powerful than a nuclear bomb, and it is that of the gospel. Again, the king enthroned in the heavens will meet the world's hostility with a message of victory. So you are a testimony. You indeed are a testimony of this rod of his mouth subduing your stubborn will. So I want you to see last of all with me this. Not only do we see the world's hostility, heaven's sovereignty, the last thing I want you to see with me is this is man's responsibility. In verses 10 through 11. Now that we know of heaven's sovereignty, we must cause, call hostile men to responsibility. It is not enough to know of heaven's sovereignty. We must press this sovereign rule into the public sphere. We must call kings and judges, rulers, men and women all around the world, it doesn't matter, rich or poor, all to be in allegiance to King Jesus. We must not be silent in the face of wicked rulers, but rather call them to repentance, and they must be held accountable. Here in this last section, uh, we are encounter five Hebrew imperatives. He calls them in verse 10 to be wise. Then he tells them to be instructed, 
to serve the Lord with fear, to rejoice with trembling, and to kiss the Son. And here the kings are called to make terms of peace with the King of kings. The Lord calls all men, and if you be outside of Christ even here tonight, He calls you to make terms of peace with Him. But the thing is this, the terms of peace that He calls you to make with Him, they are only His terms of peace. He will not allow you to create your own terms of peace. And if you turn tonight from your sin and embrace the gospel and surrender, there is mercy and grace to be found in Him. And you do well this evening to settle out of court with Christ. For if you die in your sin and your rebellion, at the judgment, the verdict will be final. On that day of judgment, when the wicked stand before God, there is no court of appeal on that last day. The verdict is final. So in light of this, I call you to kiss the Son. If you be outside of Christ, kiss the Son. What does this mean? Well, it was an oriental custom to show respect to one of a superior rank. And for a ruler to kiss the Son, for a rebel that wants to shake their fist at God, this is an acknowledgement that you are not the master of, of your faith, that you are not the captain of your soul. And if you fail to give allegiance to the Son, you will perish. And so today, life and death is presented to you. And I beg you, I plead with thee, if you be outside of Christ, to choose a life that you might live. Because today Jesus extends to you the arms of salvation. And he calls out to you. Come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And Jesus has swung open the doors of salvation to you. If you would but enter in and call upon him, he will save you this moment. And you'll be saved forever. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is what Jesus is calling rebels to do. To submit to his lordship. So in conclusion, we have seen the world's hostility. We have seen heaven's sovereignty. We've seen man's responsibility. We are living in uncertain times. And we have no need to fear. The Lord has set his king upon his holy hill of Mount Zion. Our king is victorious. He always wins. Our king is submitting rebels of the gospel to his cause. Our king will gain the nations and subdue rebellious kings by the powerful gospel message. We have no reason to be defeated. When we are on the winning side, we have hope in the midst of such uncertain times. Dr. Alan Cairns used to always say this, The end is not yet, and the best 
is yet to be. Adoniram Judson said, the future is as bright as the promises of God. There's no king, no politician, no circumstance, no darkness, no devil, not even Satan himself, that can stop the present reigning king of glory, of fulfilling his promise, of making his name great among the nations. And what a day it will be, as Micah said, excuse me, as Malachi said, Malachi 1.11, that from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the nations. In every place incense shall be offered unto my name, for my name shall be great among the nations. Friend, I long for that day, and I long for such a day like that in New England. It was not a strange thing at one time during the Great Awakenings. Benjamin Franklin recalled as he walked down the streets of Philadelphia, we could hear the singing of the Psalms from all the homes as he walked by. There was such a move of God that took place under the preaching of George Whitfield. Mr. Franklin said that there's not a single place where he could go around the streets of Philadelphia where he did not hear the singing of the praise of God. Might we be in such times again that God so richly blesses the preaching of his word where we know such an experience of his grace. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the scriptures. God, I thank thee, God, how you speak and you minister. And God, I ask of thee that, Lord, if there be some saint that be troubled about all that is going on, that you would fix their eyes upon the Lord Jesus, seated, ruling from heaven today, submitting every enemy underneath his feet, making them a footstool for his feet. Lord, we pray that you continue to be with us throughout the remainder of our time this evening. Bless the time of fellowship. God, thank you again for this dear church. Thank you for their dear pastor. For so many years of faithful service, continue to bless them. Continue to use them. We continue to bless our brother Bowman as well in his service here. God, bless the leadership and give guidance and direction in these days. And might we hear of thee doing great and mighty things in this work. God, might you break forth on the right hand and on the left and cause them to inherit many people. And God, might we see many souls saved and hear about many souls baptized and continuing to hear about work going on here. God, we pray for thee to move and act and stir with us throughout the remainder of our time. Lord, we pray that as we depart, allow the words of our mouth, the meditation of our heart, to be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. We ask all of this in Christ Jesus' precious name. Amen.